You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. If you have your Bibles, if you could turn to Mark chapter 9, uh, verses 30 through 41. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one located underneath uh, the seats in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, you can call your own. Consider that a gift from us to you. Again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 41. And if you, if you could and are able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Mark chapter 9, verse 30 through 41 says this, They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way they had argued, about with, argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And John said to him, Teacher, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to you. I want to welcome you here to Providence. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And if it's your first time, I especially want to say thanks so much for making us a part of your week. We're really glad that you're here. We hope you enjoy yourself. Uh, this morning, like Ty said, we're continuing our work through the book of Mark, hoping to get close to the end of chapter number nine this morning. But we got a little bit of work to do, so what I'd like to do before we begin is just to pray for us, ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. And so if you'll bow your heads, I'll do that. Father, thank you. We humble ourselves under your mighty hand. We thank you that we have the privilege and the honor to get together and to sing to you. We thank you, my God, that your word has been preserved and provided for us Thank you, God, that we do not have to rely on man's winsome opinions about life, but that we can turn to your word and in that word be led to you, Jesus, where there is life. And so we do ask, Holy Spirit, would you open our ears to hear, open our eyes to see, soften our hearts that the seed of the gospel can be planted God, we ask that you might produce a harvest in our lives. We do ask as a body that you would meet our needs corporately of the church, your bride. And Father, I ask specifically that you would meet our needs individually, every family, every person, every individual in the room, the children. God, the things that we know and the things that we don't know, I ask that you would Meet those needs by the power of your spirit and the power of your word in tandem. 
And God, help us to be humble enough to receive it, we ask in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. So last Sunday, Ty walked us through the passage that just precedes this one in chapter number nine. And the story that Ty walked through last week, I think, is the not just the preceding story in the chapter, but I think it's the context through which we can understand this interaction that Jesus has. Well, first, the interaction the disciples have along the way after Jesus teaches, and then another interaction that comes in Capernaum in the house. And so I just want to, for a minute, recap a little bit what we talked about last week. If you remember last week, Jesus is met immediately after coming down the Mount of Transfiguration with an argument that's happening between the scribes and the disciples. And Jesus quickly finds out that this argument is all on the basis of the disciples being unable to cast out the demon that was demonizing a young man and his father was begging the disciples to help. Now this man had symptoms that looked like epileptic symptoms, convulsions and seizures, so much so that it would, the Bible records that the father said this demon would make his body convulse and cast him into the fire even as a young child. And so he's just begging with Jesus and he says this famous line, you know, if you can, please help my son. And then of course, Jesus incredulous says, if I can, like, everything's possible for those who believe, and then he casts out the demon directly. But what I want to focus on is that the back end of that story, that stanza, is the disciples and them being, I think it's safe to say, extremely discouraged. And they're extremely discouraged, why? Because they had failed. And they're asking Jesus why they had failed. Now, if Jesus diagnosed the first layer of the problem last week. Remember what he said. Jesus tells them, and, and, I, and I think Ty did a great job because he says, listen, the ESV doesn't get the fullness, fullness of the translation. It just says in the ESV, this kind of demon only comes out by prayer. But if you go back into the translation, it's actually this kind of demon does not come out, but by fasting and prayer, which I think links an important distinction into what Jesus is trying to get across to the disciples, of which I think he's going to tease out as he talks to the disciples along the way. Now remember, if Jesus is diagnosing this first layer in that passage, I think he's going to peel back another layer as he continues on. And the question is this, what's the condition of the human heart that causes prayerlessness and the spiritual apathy that would cause us not to fast? Jesus is going to show us here. He's going to show his disciples. The answer, of course, is pride. And here we are going to see the pride of the disciples laid on display. Jesus doesn't have to do much. Just like in our own lives, Jesus wouldn't have to do much to uncover our own pride because we're you know, pretty regularly walking in it. Um, but here we're going to see it, and Jesus is going to ask questions, and Jesus is going to uncover the pride of the disciples. And he does this in three successive stories And so let's start with the first one, which is verses 30 through 32, and read. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Now, I want you to pick up on something here, something very important. Jesus has begun to develop a major theme that he teaches his disciples privately over the last few chapters. Publicly, we've seen Jesus do the miraculous, and that's been the primary of his ministry in the book of Mark. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick, the leper, the blind, the lame. Jesus is 
feeding 5,000 people at, at once. You know, that's the public ministry of Jesus. But in the last few chapters, we've seen that Jesus' private ministry with his disciples has been centered around one theme, and that is, I have to die. And then three days later, I will rise. He keeps telling them this. Each time he tells them the Bible is explicit to record, they don't understand what he means. They don't understand what the meaning is behind this dying and rising. Now, for us reading it, knowing the full story from hindsight, we can look at this and say, how are they so blind? How do they not understand what he's saying? He's being plain. But remember, Jesus has not been plain in so many other instances. He's, t- he's teaching in parables like the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, and then the disciples are trying to interpret, getting it wrong, and then Jesus has to explain it to them later. The kingdom of heaven is like a sower who goes out to sow seed, and they have to try to figure it out. They don't figure it out. Jesus says, you don't understand either. Let me teach you about it. And this is what's been going on continually. And so what you have to think is happening is Jesus says, I have to die at the hands of men, and then three days later, I'll rise. And they're thinking, what does he really mean? They're probably thinking, what's the metaphor here? What's the esoteric meaning behind this? They don't know that he means exactly what he's saying, directly. And I'm not, this is not conjecture from me. The book of John says that finally Philip is so exhausted by trying to figure out Jesus' meaning that he says, if you just tell us plainly what you mean, show us the Father plainly and then we'll do whatever, you know, and, and that's the famous moment where Jesus says, do you not know that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Philip? But the disciples were exhausted by trying to understand the meaning of what Jesus was saying, and here he's being directly plain about his death. Now, it's important for us to note that we, like the disciples, can often be easily confused about the very plain things that God calls us to do because we can either oversimplify something that God is speaking to us that's complex, or we could overcomplex something that's very simple. And that's what happens here with the disciples. But what I want to point out in all of this is the last sentence of this stanza, because I think it is the first uncovering of the pride of the disciples, and you'll see why clearly as we move forward. They don't understand what Jesus is saying, but the Bible records, and they're afraid to ask. Now, you might be thinking, Court, that's a little harsh just because someone's afraid to ask. or That doesn't mean they're being prideful. But listen, the context the Bible gives us moving on shows us that clearly that's exactly what's happening here. In the next few stanzas, we're going to see the point made that the disciples are not silent because they're trying to be prudent. It's not like Peter's saying, you know what, I speak up a little too much. I think I'm going to hold this one out. I'm going to pull back a little bit on the whole, you know, speak up and do a great job. You know, because Peter had just said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, yes. And then he says, but you're not going to go die. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. So he's like 50-50, you know, goes to the Mount of Transfiguration. He's like, let's build tabernacles. And then the father says, listen to my son's voice. You know, in other words, stop talking, you know, so he's now one for three. But that's not why they're not talking. The disciples are silent because they're afraid of being rebuked by Jesus, particularly amongst their peers. They're afraid of falling down the pecking order of this greatness hierarchy that they are creating in the discipleship with Jesus. They're afraid of falling out of favor with the Lord Jesus, perhaps. You know, Peter, James, and John get to go up on the mountain with him. Maybe if one of them speaks up dumbly, I can slide into the top three. So they don't want to speak. They have yet to embrace one another as brothers in Christ at this moment. They are still competitors. 
And we see this very clearly in the next few stanzas on the basis of what their conversations were on the way. But maybe even more importantly, they had just publicly failed for the first time in their recorded ministry. And public failure causes all of us to scramble, to pick up the pieces, to keep our reputations as intact as possible, does it not? And so we're going to be a lot more cautious about stepping out if we've publicly failed. I want to point out it's not coincidental that at the very time Jesus is talking about his death and his burial and his resurrection, which is necessary, and also telling his disciples if they don't also take up their own cross, they can't follow him. Meanwhile, they're doing everything they can to preserve their own life and reputation. Not coincidental. Jesus is teaching a lesson that they're missing abominably. Some years ago, I sat down, we used to have this uh, like internal social media site called The City when we first planted Providence, and it was a way that we communicated with one another and would do our meal trains, we'd do our home groups, and I sat down to, I used to write uh, all of our home group stuff, all of our home group guides, and also like various different like kind of pastoral blogs, hey, these are something that I'm seeing. So I sat down to write one about an issue that I thought was very important at the time, that I was constantly getting into pastoral counseling conversations surrounding and I started to write about it. it. Ended up being like 20 pages long. And by the time it's 20 pages long, I don't even want to read it anymore. And so I sent it to a friend of mine who was a pastor. He was a, he was a friend, but he was also a publisher. And I said, how do I make this thing shorter? Can I cut it down? Is there anything here that's even worth anything? And his answer was, you should spend a lot more time on it, write a book, and I'll publish it. And that obviously, you guys know that there was a, the topic was about social media. And my issue was that I saw most of my counseling situations had social media and an online life woven into the problems that were happening in real life. Sometimes absolutely the cause of the problems that were happening in real life were online life. And I was trying to figure out this was new, relatively new, and how to address this pastorally. And if all, the, all these years later, if I had to write it again, the premise would be the same. There'd be so many more things to say, but I'll say that it's clear that social media in a unique way has done more to our culture to, flan, to fan the flame of self than any technological revolution, I think, maybe in the history of the world. Now, hear me on this. Selfish pride is not new. It is as old and ancient as the garden. But the tools, the, the leverage points of society, this is altogether new because it's like a fire and if you were to just add oxygen to it, an ox, that flame can grow. And that's what these technological tools are. And I don't merely mean that it's affected us when we're on our phones or on our computers. What I mean is that it's affected us so that now our interpersonal relationships have become influenced by our online relationships and even the way that we interact. Now, I'm not saying anything that's not, nothing I'm saying is revolutionary. There have been total uh, studies, psychiatric studies that have been done on things like eye contact with young people, our inabilities to have interpersonal conversations, relationships, um, attentiveness, attent uh, attention deficit disorders, the rise of all sorts of different, not just psychological sicknesses, but more than that, and a lot of greater scientists than me, greater minds than me, have tied these things together. So I'm not saying things that are just like, oh, the crazy kook. You know, this is just obvious if you're willing to open your eyes about it. My point is to talk about how this has invaded our own lives and made us now filter our entire world through the lens of self. Now hear me on this. That's not new. What's new is the tools that encourage it, bolster it, and make it 
in, not just entirely okay, but the only way that you can live and think is to think through the lens of self. Let me give you some examples here. Think about how long, and I'm not saying this condemnably. I want, let's, let's be a little more free about this. How, how long it takes us to go from admiring a family photo of a friend online to surveying our own family in light of that curated version of our friend's family. It goes like something like this. Man, that's a really beautiful picture of, my, of that, that family, my friend. How long does it take? Usually it's seconds, microseconds, to then wondering, why aren't our family photos that good? Look at them on vacation. Man, that looks beautiful too. Why aren't we taking more vacations? And it, it turns very quickly. Everything's through the lens of self. As it's, it, it's admiring for like a half second and then it's conjuring up all these feelings in us, whether it's resentment or bitterness or envy or strife or, you know. Every husband's in the room has maybe been sitting next to your wife and she's been on her phone and then all of a sudden y'all get in an argument. You're like, where did that come from? I'll tell you sometimes where it might have come from. Or guys, and you know, maybe you're doing that same thing with your wives. It doesn't go up to happen one way. But sometimes you might, it starts to work something in you, and then you realize you're lashing out at your spouse about something that you weren't really mad at them at, mad at them about before. An example of this might be the vacations. <laughs> you're like, you know, I wasn't really hankering for a vacation, but now I'm mad at my husband. Why don't you take me anywhere? Maybe you see a date night your friend couple went out to, and you're like, you know what we don't do? Date night, because you don't love me anymore, you know? It happens so fast from like, I'm so happy for them to I'm so mad at you. How long does it take you from seeing a tragedy of a friend or maybe even a tragedy, just any tragedy online and mourning for them to wondering how you are going to be perceived by the online crowds if you don't respond accordingly and quickly? Think about this. Something happens, it's really bad, and immediately you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened to them. Within microseconds, you're thinking, if I don't respond quickly, publicly now, I am a jerk. And I got to respond right. I got to say the right words. I got to like it. Because God forbid, if I don't like it, they, and they know that I saw it, what are they going to think about me? Got to make sure that we respond in the correct way as their flower is going to be coming, a letter is going to be going. Now hear me on this. All of that's good, but notice the motivation is more about how you'll be perceived than the actual mourning. So it's not I'm always I'm doing this because I really care and love. It's I just don't want to be seen as you know, the person who doesn't care. I just don't want to be seen as, so you're obviously always defending against this potential reputational decline. How quickly do you feel obligated to have a public opinion about news that has just broken online across the world? You know, something happens in Bangladesh and you feel responsible to be an expert on Bangladesh politics in the next 30 seconds. Because if you don't respond, and you have to respond, it's not just respond with your opinion. It's like respond with what seems to be the opinion of most. So it's like quickly survey, okay, 80% of people seem to be on this side. I better be on this side too, so then we can shame the other 20%. They become the ladder, upon, the ladder rung upon which you climb up the social status because these terrible opinion people, you know. The worst of all being, maybe those people who have no opinion at all. These violent bigots, you know. They say nothing about this tragedy. You know, I have no opinions. And I could go on and on about this, but my point is, meanwhile, there's this ancient call from the Lord Jesus Christ that is at 
complete odds with this, and it's the call to die to self. Take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. Jesus is so adamant about this that he tells a man at one point when he says, I want to follow you, Jesus, he says, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He says, if you're not basically willing to walk away from everything, then you can't follow me. In other words, you have to die to the perception of self, die to the applause of the theater, die to the approval of others. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, no, I have been crucified with Christ, no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live to the Son of God. In other words, Paul's entire Christian theology was that Saul of Tarsus had died, so he was uninterested in the opinions of man about Saul of Tarsus, because you can't offend dead men. So he'd lived his life to Christ. So if he suffered, he knew, I'm suffering because they hate Jesus, and so therefore I'll share gladly in the sufferings. Because it's my life, has already gone. Now, the idea and the promise of something like, and I'm not just saying social media, so hear me. I'm just saying the entire ecosystem technologically that you and I live in. The promise is that it would make us more self-aware and more connected. And I would make the case that our self-obsession has caused us to become more alienated from our true selves and more alienated from one another as a result. The reason for this is because we've been inundated with an obligation to our curated virtual self to continue that charade going. And so because we have a version of ourselves that we need to be, to be maintained, therefore we can't really be in tune with who we really are, which is a mixture of both your happy times and your sad times. Now let me tell you why this is so difficult, and I'm not encouraging this. We all know that the happy picture on vacation with your family is not the whole picture, but I'm also not encouraging you to go out and send the Jerry Springer version of that so you can be more authentic. Now, here's why that's difficult, because incrementally, we start becoming convinced that people only view this side of us, and maybe that's half true, therefore, we have to keep up that impression. Now, what happens in your soul? You start actually believing your own press and becoming lessened in with who you really are which is what? A broken sinner in need of God's grace. So is your family. And you're also simultaneously called by him because of his grace, a saint. You're both of those things. But you can't be both of those things virtually. You have to be both of those things really, in reality, at the foot of the cross. Now, how does this alienate you from your neighbor? Well, now your neighborly relationships have that facade in between them and therefore, they can't be as deep as they need to be because the curated version must survive. Now, again, I am not specifically just talking about this impact online. I'm talking about a perpetual impact, about never being in a room privately because just in your pocket right now, maybe some of you are even holding it close like the teddy bear that it is, is a phone of which case there's thousands of people who are readily available, not just for your conversations, but readily awaiting to see what your life's going to be like today. Right now, our social status is not merely like our hometown like it was 50 years ago. Our social status it is an array of people that we actually don't know all that well, and they don't actually know us all that well. But that's the curated version of us. Now, you might be asking, what does this have to do with this passage court? Now you're just becoming a cultural critic. What I'm saying is that our self-obsessive culture has birthed in us an infatuation with all the transient things that don't really matter. 
And in so doing, we've become numb to all the things that matter absolutely the most. So more so even than the disciples, our conversations and all of our time is spent largely distracted by the things of the world, our passions inflamed to spend our lives on almost anything except asking the most important questions in life that we have become a distracted people. So like the disciples who are about to start conversing about who's greater, rather than ask the king of the universe what he means by the cross and the resurrection. Now you, you and I can stand in haughty observance and judgment of that, or if we're wise, we could say, that sounds familiar to me. Because, remember our passage in the context last week with Ty. These demons don't come out but by prayer and fasting. What's required for prayer and fasting? Humility. What is prayer at its most basic level if it is not asking the Father for that which you cannot attain apart from him? Prayer must begin with a recognition that you and I are incapable of attaining almost everything apart from God. Prayer begins with our gaze shifting to the Savior, and therefore the requisite for prayer is humility. Fasting, the requisite is humility. Now I say this not as a condemnation. I had to first sift through this in my own soul. Here's what I'm hoping for this morning, is that we would be awakened to the battle that's waging. There is a war for your affections, for your heart in your life. But the battlefield is a battlefield for your attention. Because that which can grab your gaze will have your heart. That which robs your time, takes your time, takes your talents, takes your treasure, gets your worship. And so the attention war is on. And the reason I say something like the technological revolution is significant is because it also is on your attention. Let me tell you, your attention and your information sells for a lot. Not coincidentally. Okay, and what's happening with the disciples? Their attention is so self-obsessed that they gaze away from Christ to ask him questions and they start having an argument. Let's read verse 33. They came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. There's the second time. They don't want to talk. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and he put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. You got to love Jesus here. It would be very difficult to follow Jesus. It'd be very difficult because any private conversations that you think that you have, he already knows what you've been talking about. Then he asks you rhetorical questions about those conversations in which case you know that he knows the answer and you feel this kind of weird shame. And here's the thing. We look at this and we read this and be like, oh man, that'd be tough. That's what's happening right now in our lives. God knows everything we've ever said, done, and then we go into our prayer lives and we have this weird hiding from God thing that we do. And you may think, that's crazy, we don't do that. It's been happening since the garden. You think that God shows up in the cool of the day walking in the garden and says, Adam, where are you? Because he doesn't know. God asks questions because you need to know answers, not because he needs the answers. You need to say the answers. That's what confession is. God knows that we're sinners. 
He needs us to know that we're sinners so that the Savior's glory shines forth. But until we confess with our mouth that we are sinners, we remain in the dark about the Savior. So he calls to us and says, what were you talking about on the way? Because he wants the disciples to say, about which one of us is greater? Think about the craziness. And yet, and yet, if you're honest with yourself, you'll think, you know what? That also is like me and all my friends. I've never been in a group of guy friends that we couldn't make a competition out of almost anything. And this happens with the disciples. They're like, you know, they just get done hearing Jesus, like miraculous things happening, exhibiting massive amounts of humility. And they start thinking, which one of us is actually closest to Christ? It's laughable, and yet it's what we do. That's why we have celebrity preachers that we like rank in our heads. There's nothing more unfathomable to me than this. Who are we ranking? This is what Paul's issue was with the Corinthians. I follow Paul. I follow Cephas. I follow Apollos. And Paul's saying, who cares who you're following? Christ is all in all. But until we're able to confess with our mouths the pride that exists, we'll never, we'll never actually get outside of the trap of pride because only the Savior can open that cage. And what's necessary is for us to verbalize the answers to which God asks the questions, and yet he knows. 1 John chapter number 1, verses 8 through 10. I really could have picked almost any verse out of 1 John because they're just so chocked full. But listen to what John says about sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Okay. So the disciples know that they've sinned. They know that they shouldn't be arguing about these crazy things. The enemy wants them to pretend like it's not sin, but they do know that's why they have shame. Okay, so shame's not always a bad thing. There is such a thing as misplaced shame, but shame can lead us to truth, which is like I'm ashamed of something because I know that I ought not have done that thing. The next step with the enemy, though, is to keep your mouth closed to confess your sin. Watch this. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, the enemy wants them to remain silent that they might not confess their sins. And then, of course, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So there's really two options for the enemy. Either have you confess with your mouth that you're not a sinner, so then you're a liar, or to have you stay silent and not confess your sins, even though you know you are. And Christ is asking the question, what were you talking about? So that they would just confess so that he might heal them. And the shame keeps you under the lie that the father is unwilling to receive you. And yet that's all he's willing to do. That's the prodigal son parable. He was waiting for us to confess with our mouths that which he already knows is true and we know is true. And then life comes. Life springs forth through the humility. Now, there's something else going on here. Jesus offers these two concepts to them as a object lesson. He says, if you want to be, be first, you have to become last. If you want to be great, you got to be a servant. And then he brings a child up and he says, anyone who receives this child in my name receives me. And anyone who receives me receives him who sent me, the Father. Now this is so integral to the Christian ethic. It's unique. Jesus is showing us the chain link between our love for God and our love for neighbor. And he shows us by saying, it's through our reception of the lowly things, the lowly people, the people that you wouldn't typically accept. The Pharisees would not have done children's ministry. It was below them. The scribes didn't let the kids come in when Torah was read. They were sent outside. 
And Jesus says, but you receive that which they have deemed low. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says that it pleased the Lord to take the lowly things of the world to confound the powerful, the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And so Jesus says that we, how we treat the lowest is a chain link of reception to him and his father. Later, John will show us the most obvious connection. And he says, if a man says, I love God, but I hate my brother, he's a liar and there's no truth in him. Because how could you say that you love God, but not the man who was made in his image? And so John's saying that these are inextricably linked. How we treat the lowly. Jesus would say to his disciples at one point, Matthew 25, I was sick and you did not come and pray for me. I was imprisoned and he didn't come and visit me. I was hungry and he didn't feed me. I was thirsty and he didn't give me a cup. And his disciples say, when, Lord, when were you this way and we didn't do this? And he says, that which you've done to the least of these, so you have done it to me. And so he says, we must humble ourselves. And in the treatment of our neighbor, we walk in the school of Christ and learn what real humility is. The outworking of our love, our humility, our dependence on God is horizontal. It's neighborly. And that's the school that Christ has us in. Now watch this. This is one of the most interesting parts. The most difficult part of my sermon prep is here. Watch how John responds. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said to him, don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to afterwards, soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. And truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now, the reason that this is so difficult, I'm hoping you're picking up on this, is why did John say that? Anybody else? It doesn't seem connected. The entire conversation has been stemming around humility, great, true greatness, pride, John responds, I found some people that were casting out demons in your name and I shut it down because they didn't follow us. Why would he say this? It took me a long time to think this through. And it occurred to me, it would not be surprising for the disciples to be scandalized by one of the people from the crowds casting out demons in Jesus' name. This authority that had only just recently been bestowed upon the 12 by Jesus himself, they are exercising and they are just this random person. Did they understand the depths of Jesus' teaching? Were they rebuked personally by the Lord and taught by him privately the parables? Had they been commissioned to go from town to town to preach in the authority of his name, casting out demons? Were they actually showing humility by being this presumptuous? And so the passage reads something like this. John stands up and says, you know what, Jesus? I've met some of these prideful people like you're talking about. I shut them down. Now, you should read that and think, hopefully, we're thinking, I resonate with this. Because what we see here is that brother or that sister that goes to class, learns a new truth, and immediately takes up a role as teacher. You guys know who I'm talking about. I'm not saying it's you. I'm just saying it's you. It's when God teaches us humility and within six hours of that moment of prayer, we are now leading a Bible study on humility. 
It's when we're hearing a sermon and the moment that the spirit of the conviction of the Lord comes on our heart, we immediately think, you know who else needs to hear this? My family. Start hearing, you know what? The Lord starts to convict us about repenting of our pride. And you know, you know what? All my family are prideful. We gotta fix this. Thank you, Jesus, on behalf of my sinful family because we're gonna fix this up. To be in the school of Christ is to never leave the student's chair. Even teachers never leave the student's chair because the master stands at the ready at the lectern. And the moment that even as a teacher that we think we have graduated to stand alongside him, we become like Peter. When he stands alongside Jesus and says, it's good that we're here on the Mount of Transfiguration, isn't it? Like, no, we are not those that stand alongside the Savior. We call him teacher as well. We call him Lord. And humility might be the most difficult thing to teach upon. Why? Because the moment that person feels as though they're qualified to teach on humility and they're ready to do it, apart from the prompting and help of the Spirit, they've already disqualified themselves by not even knowing what the word means. Because we cannot be humble and not be dependent. We can't feel ready apart from him. Or as Jesus' own words, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I've been convinced that part of the Christian life is realizing that your dependency upon God for things is not like a handful. It's not like I need him for salvation and then obviously to raise good kids. That's why I came back to church. You know, college was fun, but now it's church time. Um, you know, the kids got to be raised in a virtuous, t- you know, place because, you know, the Lord knows what's going on with our culture. No, you've been dependent every breath while you've been sitting here on an infinite God that gives it to you by his mercy. You don't get to decide whether or not you wake up tomorrow. You don't get to decide if you get a phone call on the way that'll change your life forever. You don't get to decide if lunch is going to be hot or cold, good or bad. You are dependent. You were made this way. God made you this way. He breathed life into you. And then the Bible's a reminder that he alone has the breath of life. If you ever wondered why did he make us out of dust, it's a reminder. You are but dust. (laughs) So what makes us unique? It's him. See, pride sets you up against your neighbor on all sides. Your neighbor He becomes your competitor. You become his arbiter. You become his judge. Eventually, he becomes an enemy. But humility sets you alongside your neighbor. Even when you're in a place of authority, you see your neighbor and you treat him as a fellow man. You too are a man of flesh. You too know the human frailties that your brother and sister deal with. Pride will make your own spouse your enemy. But humility alone will unite you to your spouse under the kingship of Jesus You see, ultimately, pride will make people into one of two things. They are either objects or they're obstacles. Either they are objects that you can manipulate to gain an advantage in your life, or they are obstacles that must be destroyed because they're in your way. It's only humility that reveals people as they truly are, souls, image bearers of God, worthy of dignity and value, Worthy of your service and care. And of course, it's only humility that reveals to us the truth that's always been laying right before us since we were born. Namely, only God can exalt 
and bring a man low. This is the lesson of Job. Naked I came into this world, and naked I shall leave, but blessed be the name of the Lord. All of our kingdoms that we build are sandcastles that we're like children building up like they're real forts. We're like plastic sword LARPing around like we got real kingdoms. Only God sets up a real kingdom. Only God exalts a man or brings him low. And the moment that you recognize this, you realize that all of the prideful charade of trying to climb the ladder, using people for it, has missed the most fundamental reality in the universe. Namely, that there is a God and you and I are not him. Now, of course, we have the gospel, which gives us a fuller story, which is not only is there a God, but he's a good God, a gracious God, a God that loves us, a God that was willing to come as a servant and die for us. But we must make this observation. We should be cautious in our intervention with our brothers and sisters, checking our hearts at the door so that we might not be puffed up with conceit and stumble even as we seek to uplift them. Are there times that we should intervene and engage our brothers and sisters? Of course there are. But hear me on this. Are there times where our assumptions and our motivations for intervening are derived from something that is not a love for God and our neighbor? Of course that's true. You know why? Because Jesus told us there are times that we will approach our neighbor with a log in our eye to do surgery on the speck. We will approach our neighbor with the clear vision of their sin And no vision at all in reality. Of course you can't see yourself in the mirror. You're bleeding out. But we can see each other pretty clearly. You know your family members are all sinners. You're just not real keen on knowing yourself. But humility does something different to you altogether. Humility places you at the foot of the cross. And at the cross there are two things that happen. Humbling and exaltation. At the cross, we see a Savior who had to die in our place for our sins. Jesus was sinless. He did not have to die for his own sins for ours. It humbles us. It brings us low. It brings us mourning. But the cross exalts us because what we know is that three days later, he rises. And rather than coming to us as enemies, he extends his hands to us as children and says, Come to me, all of you who are labor, laboring. You're heavy laden. I'll give you rest from all of your kingdom building, and I'll offer you a kingdom that's eternal. And so simultaneously, when we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, he lifts us up. I want to finish with this thought. Most of us think that a humility is turning the volume down on ourselves, thinking about ourselves less, thinking less of ourselves, you know, all of these things. And of course, that's an aim, right? We want to do that. But the only successful route to humility that I see in the Old and New Testaments is something altogether different. It's actually a humbling that is true happens when we gaze at the greatness of our God and it is a byproduct of his glory. So it's not looking inwardly and thinking, how can I tune down my version of myself and think about myself less? No, it's seeing God for who he really is and the byproduct of that is inevitable humility. You ever notice this? When people meet up with God, what's the first thing that happens? It's not like they chose to like, you know what, I'm going to be humble today. I'm going to fall prostrate. No, they just were, boom, on their face before the Lord. Peter realizes he's in the boat with the guy who commands fish into the nets, and he falls down. I am a sinful man. Depart from me. 
Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up. His train fills the temple. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm amongst a people of unclean lips. Job meets God in the whirlwind and he says, I have heard about you with my ears, but now I've seen you and I despise myself. Humility is a byproduct of seeing the glories of Christ. And the good news of the gospel is that that humility leads to exaltation. And so here's my admonition to you this morning is that we would turn our eyes to Jesus. You see this passage, it ends with Jesus saying things like, hey, don't stop them from preaching in my name. You know why? Because if they see me for who I am, they cannot help but follow me soon. He says, likewise, if you give the a cup of water to anyone in my name, you will not lose your reward. Why? Because he's the central focal point. He's trying to teach his disciples, turn their eyes to me. Or as he tells his disciples, the prophecy says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself. And so this morning, my prayers that would be drawn to the glories of Christ and in so doing, walk in the humility that only he offers. We pray for us. Father, I confess to you, the things that I've spoken about this morning, I have not followed perfectly. I've sought them, but Lord, you know that I've fallen short. And I confess that not to my own self-aggrandizement, but for the good of my brothers and sisters, that they might also openly confess that at times we're like the disciples jockeying for position in a world that hates us jockeying for a job position that we don't even want, job, jockeying for popularity that would never make us happy. And so, Lord, we come to you now and we ask, would you give us a clear vision of your glory, a clear vision of the cross and resurrection, a clear vision of your beauty, that in your presence we would be humbled and find joy forevermore. We thank you that that offer stands. Give us the humility to receive it. In your precious name, amen.